Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, and it says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a God who rescues and redeems and calls us and restores us back into your family. And I ask that we would live in such a way that the world would know the goodness of who you are, that you would gain great glory by how we live and understand the blessings you have given us and teach us as a community together how to live those things out. We ask that you would give us a heart and a passion and a vision for this world like you have it, and that we would live it out in a way that people know who you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is week 16 of that series called Didn't See That Coming. Uh, it's all about the gospel, learning what the gospel is and how to speak it fluently to people around us. For too many people that don't know Jesus and they hear the word gospel, what they think is that some Christian's going to show up and hand them a Bible track and they're going to have an awkward conversation. For too many people who are Christians and they hear the word gospel, they think that they're the people that are going to have to hand out Bible tracks and start awkward conversations. But that's not what the word gospel means. We we have so lost the idea of the truth and reality. The gospel simply means uh, honest, true, good news. Like anybody here ever been pulled over by a police officer in your car? Not just walking down the street, right? Okay. Anybody ever had a police officer let you out of a ticket? Okay, so what do you do when you tell someone about that story? You go, oh, I was driving like a nut, police officer pulled me over, and he let me go. What you're doing is you're telling good news to you that the officer let you go. That's, that's really speaking the, the gospel. The word gospel is good news about an event. It's definitive information about something that was good, like I got out of a ticket, or World War II is over, or your iPhone is now semi-waterproof, or the Backstreet Boys broke up, you know. Their union tour did not go well. Yes, right? It was, she said yes. You know, all those things, that, that, that's all good news. In terms of the Bible, when we talk about the gospel and the good news, it's that God is seeking to save and rescue and restore us again. It's that we have broken relationship with God, and yet God is seeking again and again to bring us back into relationship. He takes upon himself all that we did to break relationship with him, and he restores us. And so it's that our actions result in this thing called sin, and sin comes out of pride, and sin is all the ways that we want to do our lives different than God calls us to, how we, how we think we know better than He does. In the second week of Didn't See That Coming, I told you four different things that sin is, and I told you this, that sin is the disruption of God's peace. This is the word shalom, that God has a way intends for us to live with peace with Him, peace with one another, peace with creation, even peace with ourselves. And sin is all the ways that we disrupt that peace that God intends for us to have, that we are a people who violate God's peace. Secondly, I told you that sin is rebellion, that that we don't like the way God has set the world up, so we rebel against the world and the way that God has kind of set things up, and in the process of that, we destroy ourselves and the world around us. I told you that sin is then participation also in the way of death, that the Genesis Genesis and the Bible's account of creation, they are not static, they're active accounts. We're meant to be a people who go out and create a God-honoring culture, but what we tend to do is push things in the exact opposite direction that God calls it to when we bring about death. This could be individually in our lives, it could be in our families or our workplaces or even globally. And I told you that sin is ultimately missing the mark. It's an archery term where you miss what you are aiming at. And so sin enters the world, the beginning of humanity. We run from God, we start to destroy everything, and yet God still comes. And God promises in Genesis 3.15 that he would take care of our sin problem. God warned humanity, if you sin, you die. 
And when we think, oh, but they didn't really die in the book of Genesis, but they did. Because eventually it results in physical death, but death is the idea of separation. We have separated ourselves from our source of life, who is God, and we are spiritually dead. And eventually that again results in physical death. But that's death. Death is separation. But our God took our death upon himself. And so doing offers us true and new life again. We get relationship. Didn't see that coming. But that's the gospel. That's the good news. When we understand the good news in our lives and we trust Jesus, we surrender to him, we become living embodiments of the gospel. It's, it's not about handing out a track or a TV show or a sermon. It's about us and our lives becoming those things. We live out, all of us, in our lives, this good news of the gospel. And so what that means is the gospel should be good news for everybody, including our neighbors that maybe you don't even care about too much. It should be all of our neighbors should love people who love Jesus because we become better neighbors. There was a study that was done a couple years ago, and they asked people this question about born-again neighbors. 70 to 80 percent of Americans do not want a born-again person living next to them. And I want to tell you, if you asked me that question, do you want a born-again Christian next to you? I might have to think twice about it because they're a bunch of weirdos. We are a bunch of weirdos. And yet, if we really were living out the reality of the gospel, we'd be better neighbors. And we'd be better workers. And, and we'd be better worshipers. We'd be all those things because we're living what we understand that God has first done in us, given us grace and hope again. And so didn't see that coming is simply our effort to get everyone to understand the gospel better. And when you have a question and you can't figure out the answer, always come back to Jesus because really when in doubt, everything's about Jesus. The gospel is all about Jesus. So if you will indulge me, which you have to because I'm going to do it anyway, uh, I'm going to do a brief refresh of everything we've talked about up to this week. I'm going to connect it to Jesus and figure out what it means for us who call ourselves believers and Christians. And if you go, whoa, I'm overwhelmed, welcome to Element. That's how we roll. Following Jesus is meant to be done in the idea of of an historical context because the gospel, the good news, is what God is doing in our world, in our lives. It's a present reality. It's why we study the scriptures and we see God's unfolding message so we can ask, what does it mean to partake in that? So in the book of Genesis, God creates everything good. He places mankind into this good creation. And he says, follow me, love me, I'm life. It's not that, and, and it's not that God wants us naive. God wants us innocent. God doesn't want us like, well, what's going on? He wants us to understand things going on around us, but really be innocent in regard to evil. And so God says, trust me. I know what the good is. Live in the peace that I provide. And almost as soon as God says this, mankind runs the opposite direction and runs away from his peace. And in that, God still comes and he promises himself to rescue and redeem us. Like God will say, you know, something like, uh, don't put diesel fuel in your gasoline engine. And immediately what we do is put gasoline or diesel fuel in our gasoline engine but god shows up and he says i'm going to store relationship and when god does this what does mankind do we kill each other we lord power over each other it's what we do we oppress one another and so eventually then god shows up again to another guy in the scriptures name is noah noah's name spelled backwards is actually favor or grace and as soon as noah gets off of this boat that he builds he will plant a vineyard he will ferment some grapes he'll get drunk and pass out naked in his tent i know it sounds like some of your saturday nights but this wasn't really a good thing and but even after this god comes to reestablish relationship again and this pattern continues till you get to a guy named abraham and god promises this guy named Abraham. Abraham, you're going to have a son. 
And this is going to lead to a son, to a son, to a son that eventually leads to my son, Jesus. And he will come and he will redeem and he will restore. What you keep seeing is God extends himself over and over and over again. Eventually, these descendants of Abraham are people known as the Hebrews or the Israelites. And they end up in a place called Egypt in a thing called slavery. They're slaves to Egypt. They are miserable. They are oppressed. They are afflicted. And God hears their cry when they cry to him. Exodus 3, 7 and 8 says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. So Egypt is this place where God hears the cry of these oppressed people, and he comes and he rescues them. This is one of the greatest pictures of the gospel that we even talk about. Even today, we understand the terms of redemption and how God leads these people out of that place. They were in bondage to Pharaoh. And throughout the scriptures, you see that Egypt and bondage to Pharaoh becomes representations of what sin does in our lives, that we are in bondage to our sin. And like the Israelites cry out to God for freedom from that slavery, we cry out as well, and God rescues us. This cry from the Israelites inaugurates what we call redemptive history, that God hears the cry of those who are oppressed. And so Egypt is a real place, but it also becomes metaphorical language for what we're born into, this thing called sin. It also shows that sin can also gather ahead of steam, and it becomes embedded in a culture, and a whole culture that holds other people down. And so you see, when we speak about the gospel, it is about individual needs of what God does, but it's also about the good news that the gospel in our lives, when we live in a certain way, can actually make a difference in our entire culture. It can totally change everything. And so God rescues these people out of Egypt, and he brings them to this place called Sinai. At Sinai, God just doesn't rescue his people so they can walk around and have a club. Hey, we're Christians. Hey, we're saved. Let's make a little club and keep everybody else out. No, God rescues for a reason. Because God has a purpose. And his purpose is that these people would be his people in the world, his priests. He gives them a mission and an identity. In Exodus 19, he reminds them who he made them to be. In verses 5 and 6 of Exodus 19, he says, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. When he calls them priests, priests mediate the divine. They show what the God they worship is like by how they actually live. And the invitation is that when people see them and their redemption and what God has done and the change in their lives in a mystical, intangible way, that they would begin to show the world who God is. That same call is given to us as well. And it's more than just rescue. This is identity. This is restoration. This is mission all at Sinai. And when you get to the New Testament, you see this thing called the church. We're meant to be the body of Christ. We become his hands and feet to the world. God dwells in the midst of his people. All this is what God talks about at Sinai. The church is almost this idea of the rebirth, the redemption, the renewal, the restoration of what God's original ideal was. Because God wants a body of people to be his hands and feet to show the world who he is. So these people, they're called out and they go to Sinai. They wander around the desert for 40 years and then they get their country, this place called Israel, and they build a capital city called Jerusalem. So now these people have their own country. So how will these priests for God, how will they function? How will they live out in the world? How did these slaves who once cried out for freedom, how do they actually live when they have their own country? Well, you're told that what they did is they got forced labor. This is another word for slaves. And they had these slaves build the temple to their God their king's palace, and their military outposts. Didn't see that coming. In in Egypt, there's an individual dimension of what sin is and also a systemic, a culture-wide dimension of what it is. And in Jerusalem, you see the same thing that they saw in Egypt is exactly what they are doing. They have become Egypt. 
They become these people. The same thing they cried out for God's for in deliverance is the same thing they perpetrate on others. The oppressed have become the oppressors. And so God comes, and, he, and he's going to redeem these people, but he's going to do it by disciplining them. There's a key word that God uses throughout the scriptures in this to get his people to go back to who they were meant to be, and this word called remember. Remember. Why does God say to remember? Because we forget. Okay, it's really easy because okay? we forget a lot. And so what God does is he gives these people feasts and holidays and celebrations. And this is what you're supposed to do so you remember. This is one of the reasons why Element does baptisms the way that we do. Right? We have a big party and we all get together and hang out. And it's like, woo, this is awesome because we want to remember what God has done. It's a celebration. And they're supposed to celebrate to get to the place where they would remember how God delivered them, how God rescued them. And what you find out is when they get to Jerusalem, they didn't remember. They totally forgot. And I think in one way we are exactly like them because we forget all of the time. When God calls us to bless and honor one another with how he has first blessed us, and when we don't do that, we forget. So God disciplines his people and allows their country to be overrun by these people called the Babylonians. In Jerusalem, they lost their mission and identity. So God sends prophets, and these prophets say words like repent and return. This would be the Hebrew word teshuva. It's this idea of returning to who God made you to be. It's about mission and identity. He goes, come back to God because your actions are making your hearts harder and harder. In 2 Chronicles 36, we looked at, and this is what happened, how they went into Babylon and were taken captive. And in Babylon, you're told that they become slaves to the Babylonians. But even there, God says, while you're there, in that predicament, bless your city. Bless your city. Be my people. Live for me again, even while you're there. And they start to sing songs while they're there in Babylon. Psalm 137 is one of them. And it says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. That's Jerusalem, where we were, where we came from. And so you have this cry, and God always hears the cry. They start to cry out again. And so God hears this cry, and he's going to do something new, and God does bring them back. And you see these parallels. While they're in Egypt, in slavery, it says they were there for 430 years. The end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New, there's 400 years. And then Jesus starts his public ministry 30 years after that, so we have 430 years. So you have 430 years in Egypt, 400 years of quietness before Jesus shows up again. And you have these parallels that Jesus is now going to be like a second Moses. He's going to lead a new exodus. All of God's promises are going to come true. He's going to rescue his people. And when Jesus starts his public ministry in Israel, that's essentially the backdrop. He's announcing these same things. Everything Jesus does when he arrives, that's the backdrop of his people. That's their understanding. And this is why we can't look at the scriptures simply from a Santa Maria 2018 perspective, because we got to see the whole backstory. That's what didn't see that coming is. And now that these Israelites are back again in their country, Jesus comes, but they're still kind of in exile because the Romans now oppress them. They are a conquered people, and they're still crying out. Open your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. They have a temple at this point that a king named Herod built for them. Herod is not a godly guy, and so the temple is corrupted and tainted by politics and money laundering and bribery and misused power. The people are waiting for what God promised in Moses in Deuteronomy 18.18. God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Like Moses brings them out of slavery, takes them to Sinai. So they're waiting for this again, this deliverer to lead them out. And so with all this in mind, Egypt and Sinai and Jerusalem and Babylon, the cry for Moses and the new Exodus, John chapter 1 verse 43, this is what we read. 
The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. That's how a rabbi would call disciples. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. That's a small fishing village on the north shore of Galilee. It was very orthodox at the time. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, I think it's kind of funny in there that he goes to his buddy and he says, and he says hey, we found Jesus. When the text clearly says that he, Jesus found Philip. But that's how we are too. I found Jesus. Well, no, we're lost. Jesus finds us, okay? So that's how that works. But, but, he, but they say, the one Moses wrote about, that's referring to Deuteronomy 18. He says, Jesus, the new Moses, is here. That's their understanding of Jesus. That's their understanding. This is the good news of the gospel, the news and the story about what God is doing again. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Jesus comes, starts his public ministry. He goes to a place called Capernaum. It's by the beach. It's a really nice place. And Matthew quotes some Old Testament prophets about words turning from exile and things like that. God bringing great light. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 17 says this. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus, the new Moses, shows up, says, Repent, the, new, the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom of God, and he uses that word, repent. When we hear the word repent, we typically think of some weirdo in downtown New York City with sandwich boards like, Repent, the end of the world is nigh, Armageddon's coming, you're all going to burn. That's what we think. But in a Jewish mindset, this word for repent is the word return. It's God saying, Return to who I call you to be. Come back, live as I call you to live. It's the language of exile. Because they keep feeling like they are the exiles. And even here where they are, it's like Jesus says, you may be in the land, but you're not living as the people of God. Come back from your exile. Let's build a new kingdom, one that upholds justice and righteousness. One where you begin to live as the image bearers of God again. Everything that Jesus says and does is building off of their story. He calls them to mission and purpose, a new kingdom, return from your exile. This is why we've done all the weeks, 10 weeks now, to get to where we are today. So hopefully if you've been here for some of that, you'll see the story and the progression and where it's all going. You've got to have that backstory because Jesus does not speak in a vacuum. He speaks with loaded story, with loaded gospel, with loaded good news. Israel is supposed to be the people of God, and they are conquered by Rome. And they're asking, why are we conquered by Rome? And they're sort of paralyzed in the midst of this. Like, how can we really be God's people if we get beat up all the time? And in America, Christians, we're living kind of the same way. Because in America, Christians are so weird. We're like crazy people. It's like half of Christians want to go out and start wars and blow up everybody who doesn't agree with us. And the other half walks around moping like, oh, everything's over. Our government hates us. What are we going to do? Right? But that's what the Israelites are like. They're like, we just can't wait for that Redeemer because he's going to kill everybody that doesn't agree with us. Which Jesus saves everybody, which is totally amazing. Right? And But they're like, oh, you know, when the Redeemer comes, he's going to kill everybody. And then the other hand, like, but our government hates us and we can't do anything. Oh, what are we going to do? We're just like them. We are just like these people. Open to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. You keep seeing Jesus talk about this mission and identity and calling people back. All this is so important to what's going on. Matthew chapter 9 verse 1. This is some people's favorite story about Jesus healing somebody. Uh, but it says, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. So here's a paralyzed guy lying on a mat. Now this is at a time that the nation itself is paralyzed. And an Eastern Hebrew writer like Matthew, they would write communally. We write today individually, but they would write communally where sometimes, you know, we read something and we don't understand the communal nature of what it says. Like when we read in Genesis that, you know, God created the heavens and the earth, we as Americans get very offended because it doesn't say dinosaur. We're like, it should say heavens and earth and dinosaurs because the Bible has to say the word dinosaur. 
Well, no. Heavens and earth refers to everything that was made. It's this idea of communal in nature and how it's written. And so the writers would write about one person, and many times the audience would read themselves symbolically into the text because that's how they saw the world. They saw it as a communal thing. Where Americans, we are very individualistic. These people would see it as a communal thing. So there's a paralyzed guy lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. What does Israel need? Their true need is for forgiveness of sins. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. So Jesus confronts them. Go to verse 6. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. It's interesting that he says, Go home. Because this is the idea of exile language. I think this is an actual story about an actual man who actually gets healed. But Matthew's target audience is Jews. And when they read the story, they would look for something deeper in it because they'd read themselves communally in the text. And they would have seen paralyzed, sin forgiven, go home. What language is that? That's exile language. It's exile language. Return to be the people that God called you to be. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Matthew is really the most Jewish of all the gospel accounts. Uh, some people think that it was actually written in Aramaic and trans- translated into Greek at some point. But anyway, uh, Matthew chapter 5, I'm gonna, while you're turning there, I'm going to read you Isaiah 49 verse 6 about God bringing his people back. God says, Is it too light a thing that you, that you as plural, should be my servant, so all Israel should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? Again, restore, bring back, it's exile language. I will make you as a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So the original language in this is people would live in such a way the whole world would know that there is a good and loving and gracious God. The passage shows that, that God's intention is not just that you singular, it's you as an entire people coming to live restored together in a way that we become light to everyone. In this case, he's telling them they'd be a light to people who weren't Jewish. In our vernacular, we'd be a light to people who aren't Christians. So Matthew chapter 5, it's found in the middle of this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and people read this individually, but it's not meant to be read individually. You gotta read it like you're from this Jewish perspective of seeing yourself in the text. Matthew 5, verse 14 says this, You are the light of the world. And that you is plural. Do you think Jesus has something in mind here? You are the light of the world. Oh, this sounds like Isaiah, right? He says, A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. You don't pull out a flashlight and go click it and throw a blanket over it because you want to see where you're going. You pull it out and you, and you shine it around so you can see. This is referring back again to Isaiah. But on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In Jewish thought, a house wasn't just a, a building. It's a place where people lived. And also, the idea of the earth, the idea of the earth is that the entire earth is God's house. And so then he says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others. So, oh, it's not just about my own individual house. This is about the earth. So they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. To Israel, there's a calling that says, you're my light in the world. You're still being invited to return from exile and be my people. To people today who believe in Jesus, he says the same thing. You are my people return and be who I'm calling you to be. The story of your redemption should be something that everybody gets to hear about because that's the good news of the gospel. I'm going to give you a gospel statement right now before I wrap this thing up because I think this might help where we're going. Okay, The gospel is the good news that though we have lived and walked in darkness, our God has restored us to himself because of the work of Jesus. He now sends us out to be his light in the world. 
Now, people still ask, even now, like, why you keep changing the gospel statements every week? Because they relate to what we're talking about week to week, so the story progresses and we understand. And in these gospel statements, you typically see three things that we're trying to help you to understand. Number one, where we were. Secondly, what Jesus has done. And thirdly, what we're called into. These three things go together. So what you see is the gospel is the good news that though we have lived and walked in darkness, where we were. Our God has restored us to himself because of the work of Jesus, what Jesus does. He now sends us out to be his light in the world. Now that's our calling. That's our mission. We're restored into this thing as the people of God. That's how our gospel statements are meant to go. Now, I think part of the problem today is over the last couple generations, we teach this thing of individual forgiveness, which, which is true, but the dominant understanding today is you need to be forgiven of your sins, which is true. Okay, We affirm that. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But we tell people this in such a way for the purpose that individual forgiveness is so we can get out of this place and we can go to heaven. Like you ever, There's these bumper stickers that are out for a long time. I think they still have them. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Right? That's horrible, because what it says is, in case of rapture, this car is going to be a missile and could kill you, but I don't care because I'm out of here. Right? That's a horrible way to think about it. Think of how much language we use today that is built around a faith that's an escape plan or fire insurance. Secondary magazines or uh, TV news hosts, like almost yearly they do these things. Who's going to heaven? Who's going to hell? Who thinks they're going to heaven? Who thinks they're going to hell? When anybody gets interviewed on a no- news program about f- someone who's like a person of faith, it's like, well, who do you think is going to heaven? It's like our whole culture understands this in a way that the scriptures don't really talk about. The questions in our culture come down to this understanding because the Christian message, and sometimes the way Christians even understand it, is that Christians are a group of people who believe that they have a way when they die or when this place blows up that know how to get out of here. That's the thing. And so there comes the language of, are you going? Are they going? Do you know anybody that's not going? What's that look like? Do you know what I'm talking about? Great. Last service, like two people were like, okay. You know, I'm glad, glad you're with me, okay? Because I don't want to start this whole message all over again. The, the message of God throughout the scriptures, the message of Jesus, that's, it centers around a few things, and none of them are about getting out of here. None of them. They're all so much more relevant to today because it's not about leaving. It's about here and now. This is what it centers around. Number one, confronting Israel and us with our God-given destiny. We are called to be light. We are renewed. We're restored. We're redeemed. We get to be salt in the world. When Jesus preaches, he speaks to religious people. Build a new kingdom. Not a kingdom of men, not a Solomon kingdom, but God's kingdom. It's mission and identity. Secondly, it's people living in such a way that they bring heaven to earth in how they live and how we understand the gospel message and the story that we begin to live out the good news here and now. You never see Jesus say, do this, and one day you get to go to a sweet place and use your donkey as a missile. You never see him say that. He calls people to return and to be. He calls people to pray, Father, you, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's how we begin to live. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't speak about when we die. It doesn't mean he doesn't talk about life after death. But first and foremost, his message was not, let's get out of here. It's, you are called to be light in the world. Return and be. Return to who God is calling you to be. And that when we live in this way, the world takes notice because we actually live differently. And thirdly, the message of salvation and repentance and hope and new life is directed at those who already claim to know God. That's where it's pointed towards. Jesus goes to religious people and calls them to live the life they claim to be living. And this responsibility in them, that if they're going to call themselves the people of God, to actually be the people of God. And when Christians run around the world and say to people who never claim to follow God, you're out of line, that's not really something Jesus did. What Jesus does is he goes to those who claim to know God. 
And he confronts them with their lack of obedience and their hard heart and their indifference. And he calls them to return and be. God has sought you, blessed you. He wants to bring you in. The message is about flesh and blood people stepping into their God-given destiny. I don't know how many of you, when you see Christians in pop culture or on TV pointing the finger at people, how the world's going to hell, you ever thought that it says, I don't know if that's working? My wife and I were driving down Broadway this week, and there's this group of people on the side of the road, and we got stuck at the light, and I'm like, oh no, well, what's this about, right? It's a bunch of people, and they're screaming at the cars that drove by, repent and Jesus. I, I don't know if they understand that Jesus doesn't need to repent because Jesus is God, right? Okay, uh, but and, and I'm not. This isn't meant to say something about their heart or their passion or their zeal or their love or anything like anything like that. But but I think that idea isn't really working because that's not really what Jesus did. Jesus goes to those who claim to know God, and he says, when you're the people I called you to be, when you understand the gospel, when you live in this good news, how I call you to live, it's not going to be fuzzy for the world anymore. I think what's fuzzy for the world is when we claim something and our life doesn't really back it up. Where we claim this gospel good news, and we think that's, here, here's a track. It's, and it's not about relationship, it's about telling people what to do. I mean, we have to ask if we're living the whole story of the gospel. Because Jesus calls us, even as messed up as we are, to be as ambassadors to the world. The gospel restores us to relationship and to position. And I know a lot of people who say things like, I, I'm just not good enough. I'm just not good enough. I've got to figure things out more. And you're right. You're not good enough. Okay, But Jesus is. And he lays that righteousness upon us. This is why he's the one that calls us. In John 8.36, he says, If the Son sets you free, you, you will be free indeed. If we want to be a people who understand and live out in this world how God calls us to live the gospel, that means we need people who understand the rescue and the redemption that God has done to bring us into the kingdom of God. This is a kingdom that endures and makes a difference in lives around us. And that's not a story just about an individual. That's a story about a people being restored and redeemed to come home. God is like a father who stands in a driveway with his arms wide open saying, come home come home to rescue and identity and hope and grace and renewed life. This is what God does. He calls us to come in and be restored, and we get to be his people. We get to live in his family. The scripture uses the language of family all through it, that we, if you believe in Jesus, we all become brothers and sisters. God saves us, yes, individually where we are, but then he places us into his family, where he is our father. And we become brothers and sisters. And we live out this life together. Because God intends for us to be a people, a family, a nation of priests. Who show the world who he is because he is good. This is where the story of the gospel goes. The good news that we have been brought in again. This is why we talk about communion every week at Element. You take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It reminds you of his blood that was shed for you and me because he brings us back in. All the way back in Genesis 3.15, he promises, I will redeem, I will restore, and he comes and he does it. Jesus sheds his blood to take away the sin that separated us from God and us from one another. And by believing in his grace and his sacrifice, we are restored into the family of God. Some of us have been in it a long time, and we're still just as crazy as the ones who first joined it, right? Because we're all just a little, little bit nutty. But God is the one who does the rescuing and redeeming and restoring. And so we trust him and begin to speak out these great things that God has done. The band's going to come up. As they do, I invite you to take communion. There will be some deacons in the back, and if you need prayer, uh, they'd love to pray with you. 
Uh, if you maybe felt like you were living your life in exile a little bit at some point and you want somebody to pray with you about that, maybe you're making some you know, poor decisions and you've walked around and told people you're a Christian and then you know, you don't, your life doesn't really look like it so much, and they, they would love to pray with you about those things, about the ideas of, of restoration and renewal and hope and grace and, and life again. Sometimes I think that we get so messed up on our heads because we think we have to have everything figured out, and we don't. Uh, I'm going through my own personal quiet time right now through the Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Mark, you know, Jesus heals this demon-possessed guy. And, and, he, and after he's done, the guy's like, let me go with you. And Jesus goes, no, go tell everybody what I've done for you. And it's like, what does this guy know about theology? It's like nothing. I mean, half the Bible teachers, they'd be like, ah, you can't. He doesn't know anything. What does he know? Jesus saved him. That's what he knows. And so we are a people, even if we think we don't know a whole lot, if you love Jesus, you know Jesus saved you. And that's what we begin to speak about. That's what we begin to talk about, the restoration and the hope of what he has done. And we speak that into each other's lives as believers. We encourage one another with it. And then we as an entire people begin to live in a way that is simply different because our God's good. Uh, there's offering boxes inside walls next to all the doors. We give because giving is what God does to us. God gives to us, so giving is part of our worship. There's food outside. Grab something to eat, meet some other people, take some of the didn't see that coming questions, and maybe grow a little bit deeper with somebody else this week. You know, the, we give you, you know, individual things to do day by day to kind of grow your own personal time with God, but that's not where it's supposed to end. That's where it starts. And you get together with other people and you begin to start talking through these things so we would grow together as a people because God intends for us to grow together. God redeems and restores us and places us into his family so we will live out together the great calling he has given us and we get to be lights in the world by his grace and his goodness. So let's begin to live and be those lights. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you to remind us, especially in all the ways that we so often seem to forget, that you have called us and redeemed and restored us to who we are meant to be. We confess that so often we forget that calling or at times we remember that calling but we make it all about ourselves. And I ask that today you would take the words that you have spoken to us you would have us begin to remember that your salvation of us is good news that is meant to be shared. That you redeem and restore us and place us back into your family again. That you have brought hope and life and joy into places where it never was before. That all that we are as a people comes first and foremost from what you have done for us and in us. And so I ask that you would teach us to understand and remember the great hope of your redemption, but also your call in our lives to live out that great hope as well. That we would speak of your grace and your kindness, and that we would truly live as your lights in this world, honoring you in all things because you're good. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.